1: Welcome to New Books and Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, your host. We're part of the New Books Network where authors talk about their new books. And a little news this week, the network as a whole just had a day where we had over 56,000 downloads of our podcasts. That's 56,000 in a single day across all the different shows on the network. So thank you to all of you who listen to this show and any of the great shows on the New Books Network. Today's episode is the Monster Hunters on the Rez edition. And I'm super excited to have as my guest Rebecca Roanhorse, whose book, Trail of Lightning, is not only a gripping future fable about gods and monsters in Indian country, but Rebecca has just picked up some prestigious awards just a couple days before this taping at the 76th Worldcon in San Jose. She won the John W. Campbell Award for Best New Writer, and a Hugo Award for Best Short Story. And she also previously won a Nebula Award and was a Sturgeon and Locus Award finalist. And she's with me now from her home in New Mexico. Hello, Rebecca. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, congratulations on your awards this past weekend.
0: Oh, well, thank you very much.
1: It's very exciting.
0: Yes. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's good yes it is very exciting
1: <laughs> i can't wait to dive into the book and yet i want to take a moment to ask about your career path you went to yale you became a lawyer what led you to arrive where you are today writing award-winning science fiction and fantasy
0: mm. well i've always written i think i wrote my first uh science fiction story in seventh grade when i uh I turned a science report on the planets into this uh, <laughs> somewhat gripping <laughs> um, uh, tale about an astronaut on a suicide mission into the sun and, you know, had all the sort of information that belonged in a science project, but I made it into this, this story. And my science teacher was not particularly impressed, uh, but I loved it and I sort of, you know, had the bug from there. And I've been writing for myself, um, you know, all my life, ever since then, on and off. And of course, I'm a, a huge uh, science fiction and fantasy reader. Um, it just, you know, gosh, I don't know, probably in 2013, I started to get serious about uh, writing. I, You're right, I am a lawyer. Um, <clears throat> but it wasn't, it is not a particularly uh, emotionally fulfilling job for me. There are certain aspects of it that I enjoy. But but that sort of creative uh, side of me was was sort of looking for uh, something else to do, and I, I remember how much I love writing and what a comfort it is to me, and and so I turned to that, and and I actually joined a nano rhymo group. So my first novel, believe it or not, is a nano novel, uh, and from that group, I joined a, a larger uh, writing group uh, with a couple of published authors that. Uh, It continued past that November uh, novel writing month. And as I got deeper and deeper into the story, you know, they were very encouraging. And they were like, hey, you know, this is pretty good. I bet you could get this published. Um, So I was like, huh, okay, well, I I might try that. And then uh, I went to VONA, which is uh, Voices of Our Nation. It's a a workshop for writers of color. And I actually workshopped uh, the first chapter of the book with Marjorie Liu who also just won a Hugo uh, and also won an Eisner earlier this year for her work on Monstrous. And uh, she read that uh, beginning of my book and said, yes, you can get this published. This is fantastic. And and I think that's what I really started to believe, that it was possible. So thank you, Marjorie. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it just kind of went from there.
1: And you've chosen to write Fantasy and science fiction, but not include, it seems to me, some of your experience as a lawyer. In other words, some people who are lawyers or have experience in maybe law enforcement might write a police procedural or something noirish, but that's not where you've taken your work.
0: Right. But there is a lot of what I learned in law school or what I practiced uh, in the book, actually. I, I specialized in federal Indian law, and so there are details in the book, like um, jurisdictional details about checkerboard zones, uh, which are an actual real thing, and then I, I use them in the book, because uh, the book is set in a, a future world, right, like the near future, um, so actually a lot comes through, and, and I first encountered traditional Navajo stories uh, while studying Navajo law. That was one of the things uh, that we had to learn. Uh, to get a grounding in in Navajo philosophy. And so I practice in the Navajo courts. I, I, I'm barred on the Navajo bar. Uh, so you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how much uh, legal information is in my books.
1: That's great. And just for people who don't know about the checkerboards, that's a reference to one of the ways the US government tried to take away Indian land by chopping it up into pieces so that It was. I'm probably mangling this, but so that there were white or Western people owning bits of land and next to adjacent to indigenous owners. So it wasn't, it was no longer contiguous. Is that correct?
0: That's right. Yeah, you got it.
1: Can you tell our listeners about The Sixth World, which is the name of the series of which Trail of Lightning is the first book? And I know that's a reference also that has a lot of meaning in Navajo culture.
0: Uh-huh, that's right. Yeah, so so the book itself uh was sort of pitched as um uh, 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 indigenous Mad Max Fury Road. Uh and so I think that speaks a little bit to the pacing of the book, it's sort of this fast-paced adventure and to the post-apocalyptic nature. Uh but in in this book, um the the outside world, sort of the world in general has um faced a climate apocalypse. And probably like two thirds of the world are are now underwater. So the apoc, the climate change combined with um, other things like the the New Madrid fault line earthquake and and other uh, issues have have destroyed the government, uh, sunk in most of the continent, and what is left is primarily uh, the Western United States. Um, and center of the center of that is the Navajo Nation, um, which uh, actually had the sort of foresight uh, to build a wall around uh, its land uh, before all this, like all the horrors, sort of hit. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a, for lack of a better term, it's like a supernatural wall uh, that was um, that the gods uh, of the Navajo uh, helped to build and it protected them from some of the worst effects, uh, including refugees and population and things like that. So there's a little bit of a political uh, note to that as well. Um, But practically uh, in in Navajo um, traditional stories, uh, they they, uh, focus on an emergence story as opposed to sort of a creation story. So they believe that the Diné, the Navajo, have come up through a series of worlds. Uh, and we now are in the fifth world, the glittering world, uh, although some say the fourth, depending on where you are on the res. It does uh, vary a bit. Uh, and so it made sense. Oh, and so all of these worlds, um, or the majority of them, uh, were destroyed through floods. And and, and when the flooding came, the, the creatures that were living in the world, be they people or other, other beings, had to come up through the sky into like a new world. Uh, And so uh, for climate change uh, and for this mass flooding, it made sense that uh, it would destroy this world as we know it and open up a new world, a new world where uh, the the beliefs and the the gods and the heroes of, of Navajo stories walk the land again. And this world would be called the sixth world.
1: And I think it's worth noting that this wall, which, as you say, is supernatural, you've portrayed it very dramatically. One side of it is made of turquoise. I think another side is abalone, maybe. And another side is jet.
0: Right. And each of those stones or shells uh, are important in Navajo uh, traditional stories as well. They each represent uh, one of the four sacred mountains that surround uh, Navajo land
1: as you said, in the Sixth World, the gods and creatures from Navajo mythology return. And I wonder how many of them are based strictly on your research and your understanding of Navajo culture. And how much of it have you taken liberties with and is from your imagination?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, The majority uh, exist in one form or another in uh, traditional Navajo stories but not necessarily the way that I portrayed them. Uh, So for example, uh, there's in Navajo uh, stories, there's the story of the hero twins, which you see actually in a number of Mesoamerican mythologies. And um, so I did not make up a hero twin, but I did, you know, sort of take liberties with the personality, uh, his personality, trying to keep it in, in line with what I had learned Uh, through stories of like who you know he was portrayed as in the stories and then the monsters um, again I sort of riff off um, of you know various sort of base facts that I know about Navajo philosophy or Navajo cosmology so they're grounded in in sort of Navajo thought but then I sort of run with them and, and create my own story around them.
1: And you do something similar, I think, with clans, which I know are an important part of Navajo understanding of identity in the real world and also in your book. But you've taken the notion of clans and you've added some magical dimensions. And I'm thinking particularly about the idea of clan powers.
0: Yeah, that's right. So when it was time to create a magic system, I knew I didn't want to base it in um, spirituality. Because there's already sort of a, uh, a mess in the new age sort of world of thinking about uh, Native American spiritualities as somehow magic. Uh, and yet other spiritualities are not. So I really wanted to avoid that. Uh, but what I did want to do is make it Navajo, make it dis- make the magic system distinctly Navajo. Um, and you're right in, in the Navajo, uh, culture clans are a big deal. Uh, you have four, uh, normally, uh, depending on if, if your mom and dad are both Navajo, you can have up to four, I should say. Um, and even if your mom and dad are not Navajo, you would, there are clan names for other ethnicities too. Uh, because one of the things that Navajos have always done, uh, is absorb, uh, other cultures and other people into their culture and, and make them Navajo. Um. Yeah, so I uh, so I used those uh because I wanted uh them to be distinctly Navajo uh the magic themselves. And then I wanted um so each of the, the the magic system is also based on trauma. And so I wanted to take the things uh that are that are uh hard in life, I guess, like sort of this concept of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, and sort of play with that, and and take the trauma that the characters have suffered, uh, and make their superpowers, for lack of a better term, I guess, uh, come out of that. Uh, and I'm not saying that what uh, that you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is the philosophy they all uh, adhere to. In fact, it's debated quite a bit in the book, and the characters don't agree that the powers that they have are are necessarily good. Um, some characters think that they uh, are not good. And in fact, they are evil or that uh, they certainly are not gifts of the gods. Um, so, yeah, so, so that's sort of the debate, too. There's a larger sort of um, story uh, around trauma and sort of victims and survivors of trauma.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned trauma because I was thinking about it as I was reading the book. Obviously, it is interwoven into the storytelling. But I thought the way you presented it was very original because when people often talk about Native culture, they talk about historical trauma. And as far as I recall and noticed in the book, I didn't see any references to historical trauma in terms of what the Europeans did to Native culture. You created a place that doesn't exist in terms of its relationship to white or Western culture. The Dineta, did I say that right?
0: Dineta. Mm-hmm.
1: Dineta, the Navajo world or Navajo nation, is very much its own place and it draws on its own culture and resources. And yet, as you say, there is a lot of trauma in the book. The monsters in the book are inflicting trauma, as they did on the main character, Maggie Hoskey, who, when she was younger, saw her grandmother brutally murdered before her eyes. So I wondered if you could talk a little more about how you would address this theme of trauma, but without referencing the history of the European invasion, which is how it's usually framed when people write or talk about Indian culture.
0: Right, right. So what I really wanted to do also with this story is create sort of a sovereign story so so i would place you know my book and if you were going to sort of categorize it uh as sort of an what you call an indigenous futurism type story which means we're contemplating uh sort of an indigenous future and i think you can do that in two ways you can you can write something uh that uh is in conversation with colonialism that uh discusses sort of you know this this. The effects of uh, conquest and, and colonization, and like you said, uh, historical trauma—you know—and things like that—and um, that's totally valid. That's an interesting story, and, and many other stories do that. I think my short story does that uh, more uh, than uh, this than this book does, <laughs> because in this book, I think the second way. Uh, that you can sort of create indigenous futurisms is to create a sovereign story, a story that exists on its own um, on native land, in in native thought, with with, uh, native characters and stories and process that doesn't have to be or even really acknowledge um, the larger white Western world. Uh, so this is not a story that that even has any white folks in it, <laughs> actually. Uh, so this is a story that is that is a Navajo centric story, and that's on purpose. Yeah, and so that doesn't mean that um, there's not you know trauma in your life. <laughs> I think everyone has to deal you know with certain levels of trauma. And I wanted to write a story where both the good guys and the bad guys and some of the morally great characters, everyone. Uh, was Indigenous, um, although there is uh, one family that is like a secondary uh, characters that are African-American. But I wanted to uh, tell both sides. So I didn't want to have just sort of your, your character that, you know, is always good, you know, or always bad. I wanted to have a mix of everything to show different kinds of people with their different Uh, histories and and the trauma that they bring to the table and the sort of histories and stories that everyone, you know, brings to the table uh, when they interact with other people. And I wanted it all to be Navajo.
1: Let's talk about Maggie Hoskey, who is basically the star of the book. And she's, she's a character who has internal conflicts about her powers as a monster hunter. She has clan powers that make her uniquely suited to the job. She's, and here I'm going to try to pronounce some Navajo, she is Honach Ani, which means walks around, and it refers to the fact that one of her powers is being lightning fast. And then she's also, in the words of the book, born for Hanani, I'm sure I mangled that, uh, which (laughs) means living arrow and makes her, as she puts it, quote, really good at killing people. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So can you tell me a little bit about Maggie and the internal conflict she feels and why you gave her these particular powers?
0: Mm, sure, you know. So uh, one uh, aspect of the magic system uh, that comes from trauma and is based on these clan powers is that they answer your need. So whatever your need might be in that moment of uh, this uh, thing happening to you, uh, that's what the powers uh, give you. And so in Maggie's case, you know, as you uh, mentioned earlier, uh, she her sort of. Uh, jumping off traumatic event uh, was uh, the murder of her grandmother. Um, and I don't think that's too spoilery. I think you find that out in the first hundred pages or so, but now you know. <laughs> and um, and so what she needed then, what she needed in that moment, uh, were those two powers. And so that was sort of what was given to her. Uh, but often the coping skills that we learn uh, in dealing with trauma, especially childhood trauma, may serve us in the moment but don't necessarily serve us as adults right or as we grow and and overcoming those overcoming sort of the the baggage i guess that that, that comes with it and comes with that is part of Maggie's journey and, and i think it's fair i've had a reviewer say like Maggie is you know suffering from ptsd um, and i wouldn't argue with that i think that that's definitely true and she's you know has these sort of powers that you know, or, or in a way, metaphor for, for coping mechanisms um, that are not necessarily good. I mean, like you said, she makes her well-suited for the job. But, you know, maybe that's not the only job uh, she should have. Maybe she could be a fuller human being than that. So we'll see. It's a four-book series, so she's got a ways to go.
1: Well, I know uh, your husband is Navajo, and you, as you said, lived – in the Navajo Nation are admitted to the Navajo Bar, but you yourself have heritage that is OK Owinge and also African-American. And I wondered how much you drew on your own life experience as someone with that background, in addition to drawing on Navajo culture.
0: Oh, well, definitely. I mean, I think every writer does. I think it would be... um, well, at least uh, definitely us new writers (laughs) do, Uh, you know, pretty hard actually to write uh, characters, I think, that are some aspect of you or or don't draw from, you know, the things that you know. Um, So yes, Maggie has definitely uh, got uh, a lot of me in her. I think that's fair to say. Um, But I haven't killed anyone. I'm not really good at killing people or anything. <laughs> but, you know, the whole, I, th- I think the themes of trauma and the themes of uh, abandonment and abuse that come through in the story and that are part of Maggie's character, I'll uh, pull some of my personal experiences, certainly.
1: There's a, so much I think people don't understand about Native American communities. And although your book is a fantasy and it's set in an apocalyptic future, I was wondering if you hope it will as a side effect for people who are reading it, paint a more accurate picture of Indigenous America and its people, its strengths, its culture.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a lot of stuff in the book there uh, that is for Navajo readers um, and for Native readers. Like, I... Specifically Navajo, there's a lot of Easter eggs, places they go, things they say that you know I hopefully uh, will entertain. You know Navajo folks will get a kick out of that. Um, in the larger uh, Native uh, community, I've gotten emails and um, communications from people who tell me they've never seen uh, places like what I like I talk about on the res, because you know this all takes place on the rez uh, in a book. You know they've never seen. Um, the, the details, the you know, the fry bread, uh, the way they uh, covered the shoe with duct tape, the importance of blankets uh, as trade and and things like that. Um, and I had one reader say she cried, you know, the whole way through because she's, she's never gotten to see that. And I think <clears throat> issues like, you know, at the beginning of the book, it's, it's made very clear that Maggie is an outsider, even in her own community, because of the powers that she has. And... I think for Native readers, that should hit home really hard. I think that is an aspect of Native culture uh, and Native communities uh, that perhaps doesn't uh, resonate quite as deeply um, because uh, Native cultures are really centered around this whole community and belonging to community and and what your role is and, and how that plays out. And I I think that the reader who had written me a note about that was sort of like, I see Maggie and she doesn't have this community. She lives alone. And if she doesn't have it, then who is she? How can she even exist? And I was like, exactly. You know? And so some folks will get that and, Oh, you know, that, that emotional, like how on the outs she really is. And then some folks will be like, Oh yeah, well that just sounds like, every other, you know, badass woman or whatever, but like, not for natives, for natives, that is like, that is bad stuff. <laughs> and so this, you know, sort of growth and like healing, like back towards community is, is a theme I think you see in a lot of native work. Uh, and it's, you know, something that Maggie's going to have to go through, too.
1: So, so we'll see. I wanted to talk just a little bit about the notion of your book being part of this genre or subgenre indigenous futurism. I think your book is you know a wonderful book that is compelling for many reasons. one of them is the fact that it takes place in a Navajo future but it's also just a wonderful book with all the wonderful ingredients of just plain old good storytelling and good writing and good thinking and good ideas. And I wonder if the label Indigenous Futurism isn't narrowing it and putting it into a category. Or do you see it as maybe liberating it in some way or gratifying in some way because it's acknowledging something, as you said, that hasn't gotten a lot of attention in literature?
0: Yeah. um, You know, I don't, you know, it's interesting because I I did just win to Hugo. um, And that is, you know, sort of a Popular vote kind of thing. I know you have to join Worldcon, um, but unlike the Nebula, uh, which is just science fiction writers and sometimes focuses a little more towards craft or whatever. And so winning that is like a real honor because I feel like, oh, my peers saw what I was trying to do and, and they appreciate that. Um, but the Hugo is sort of like, did I like the story? Did I not like the story? You know, did it resonate with me as this individual reader or did it not? Um, and it did. And so I don't think that, um, and, and that story is about appropriation and the commodification of culture, and, and it has a lot of sort of heavier themes, actually, I think, in it. Uh,
1: and just for, just for listeners, we're talking about your short story, Welcome to Your Authentic Indian Experience TM, trademark, uh, which is what won the Hugo and the Nebula.
0: Right. Um, and you can find it on Apex Magazine's website uh, or Lavar Burton recently read it on his podcast. So you can find it at LeVarBurtonReads.com because he does an awesome job and there's sound effects and all sorts of cool stuff. So,
1: Well, we can put that in the show notes, too.
0: Oh, OK. That would be great. Yeah. So so I think, you know, something like that, that clearly, I think, falls into sort of an, an indigenous futurism thing, because that story is about Native identity, has appeal. I think um, that people want to hear that voice. It's a, it's a voice they haven't heard in, uh, perhaps uh, before in science fiction and fantasy. And it's exciting. And it's thoughtful, hopefully. or makes them think or it makes them think about things that they haven't thought about before or see something differently than perhaps they had before. Uh, and I try not to underestimate the reader. I think that uh, readers want that kind of stuff. I mean, science fiction and fantasy readers on the whole uh, are sort of forward thinkers, you know, sort of uh, cutting edge. And I don't think that uh, being labeled an Indigenous futurist uh, or having my work be labeled that way really holds it back. I I would hope that uh, people are not so shallow as to think that Um, Oh, well, we don't want to read that because it has natives in it, you know, or something like that. Surely we're beyond that. And um, surely a good story is a good story. Uh, And that having natives in it, because a lot of people have never seen that perspective, might even make it a better story.
1: Well, it's definitely an excellent story. And the next book, Storm of Locusts, that's uh, due for release in April 2019. Is that right? That's right, yes. And are you writing full-time now, or are you still practicing law?
0: Uh, I'm still practicing law. (laughs) So the writing gets done uh, late at night or very early in the morning.
1: May you find all the time you need to complete the sixth world series, because I think a lot of people are looking forward to finding out what happens to Maggie Hoskey and her associates. Oh, well, thank you very much.
0: And then coming in uh, 2020, I'll have a new series. So I'm just going to plug that. Uh, a book called Between Earth and Sky. And that's going to be uh, more of an epic fantasy uh, that's inspired uh, by Anasazi culture.
1: Fantastic. Oh, great. Something to look forward to besides yeah. the presidential election in 2020.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Thank you so much for joining me today on New Books in Science Fiction.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me, Rob. I appreciate it.
1: My guest today has been Rebecca Roanhorse, author of Trail of Lightning, the first book in the Sixth World series, which came out this year from Saga Press, and it's the first of a planned four volumes. And as uh, we just discussed, the next one, Storm of Locusts, is due for release in April 2019. Please Subscribe to New Books in Science Fiction to hear interviews of your favorite science fiction authors. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The editor-in-chief of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the editor is Leanne Wilson. Please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts if you haven't done so already. It helps people like yourself who love science fiction find the show. I'm Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. Thank you so much for listening.